Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 11, Bomberman. On June 11, 2018, a character designer and artist by the name of Shoji Mizuno passed away. He was a key figure back in the 1990s at the now-defunct Hudson Soft, a renowned Japanese games publisher, having directed art or design or sometimes both on more than a dozen games in the popular Bomberman franchise, as well as providing original character designs for the Beyblade anime series. Since this year is also the 35th anniversary of the release of the first Bomberman game on the MSX, I thought now would be a good time to look back on how the explosive puzzle franchise made its way into the world and into the hearts of millions. The story starts in the late 1970s. After spending its first few years of business selling radio transmitters and art photographs, Hudson had shifted its attention to the nascent personal computer market. The company put computer programs on cassette tapes to save users the trouble of typing out the code themselves, which is what you had to do back then, and they sold them for Sharp's MZ80 computers. This was a profitable venture, especially given their prolificacy, with as many as 20 new titles published each month. But Hudson had grander ambitions. The company soon turned its attention to original development. They made a variety of utility software and they created their own programming language, a variant of BASIC called WhoBasic. They even got commissioned to make the operating system for the Sharp X1 computer. It's in this brief period where the company's attention was focused on non-game projects that the first seeds were laid for Bomberman's rise to fame. In a bid to demonstrate the power of Hudson's version of BASIC, a programmer called Tanaka, I wasn't able to find his given name, developed a game called Bakudan Otoko, or Bomberman, or Bomberman as it was in the game itself, which presented players with level after level of single screen mazes filled with enemies and a man in a hat. Your hero, the guy with the bombs, who could trigger explosions remotely after he placed explosives on the ground. To exit level, all you had to do was kill the balloon monsters and find the hidden exit among all the soft, destructible blocks that you had just exploded. If you dropped bombs in the right places and detonated them at the right times, you could cackle delightedly as your foes got swallowed up by the flames and exploded out horizontally and vertically. Get it wrong and you'd fall victim to your own pyromaniacs find yourself trapped between a monster and a hard place, soon to be dispatched by the deadly touch of the bad guys. The game made appearances on several Japanese home computers from the time, and even found its way over to Europe, where it was retitled Eric and the Floaters for the ZX Spectrum in 1984. British reviews gave it a slightly positive rap, with special praise for its novel bomb mechanic, but criticism 
leveled in particular at its poor controls, shoehorned as they were onto the keyboard in the shape of a badly mangled D-pad. They also noted its unremarkable graphics and its weak longevity, just 20 levels in length. And in hindsight, that's perhaps fitting reception given that the consensus today seems to be that it plays like a prototype of the games that followed. In any case, with this, the first Bomberman had made its way into the world. And it was alright. All the core elements were there. But it would have to go through a few evolutions yet before Hudson could truly make its mark with the game. Around the same time this first Bomberman was in development, Hudson had been contacted by Nintendo. And Nintendo had been making great strides in its shift from toys to video games and electronics. They had the Game & Watch handheld electronic games, for instance, which had been selling well around the world since their introduction in 1980. And they had their arcade games. By the middle of 1982, they'd sold 60,000 Donkey Kong machines. That quirky game about jumping over barrels to save a damsel in distress from a giant ape was capturing a passionate global audience. And now, in 1983, Nintendo was getting ready to release its first home console, the Family Computer, or Famicom for short, which would later become the Nintendo Entertainment System in the West, or NES as Americans like to call it. Nintendo asked Hudson to create an operating system called Family Basic for the Famicom. Hudson did this, of course, along with a number of Nintendo arcade conversions onto the NEC PC-8801, a Japanese home computer. And then in 1984, they parlayed the work into a license to make games for the Famicom. Which brings us back to Bomberman. Well, kind of. See, unconvinced that arcade games could make the jump to Famicom unscathed, Hudson decided their first Famicom title would be a conversion of an Apple II bestseller namely Load Runner. It was a puzzle platformer where players needed to collect all the gold and make it to the exit without being captured by the robotic guards. So Load Runner for the Famicom would oddly turn out to be the unofficial introduction of Bomberman, the video game character, to millions of people around the world. The connection would be made the following year. In a legendary fit of coding brilliance, former Hudson Director of Research and Development Shinichi Nakamoto, who at the time was a staff programmer, needed just 72 hours to take the mechanics from Hudson's Bomberman computer game, update them, and make Bomberman a Famicom game. Bomberman for the Famicom was, its manual made pretty clear, a prequel to Loadrunner. Its hero being a robot that looked exactly the same as the guards in Load Runner. It was literally the same sprite graphic. And a robot that had dreams of being human. Robot that indeed, after the game's completion, would become the thieving running man from Load Runner. Unfortunately, it's hard to gauge now whether the American NES release made much of a splash, but Bomberman on the Famicom was a hit. Japanese gamers loved it so much that it still ranks among the fan favourites there, 
And at least one key figure in the franchise's history rates it as a special achievement. Nakamoto himself, the game's programmer, told Edge magazine in the mid-90s profile of Hudson, at the height of Bomberman's influence, that he felt this Famicom game was the one and only version of Bomberman. But still, there was another step required to elevate the series to global fame. And I'll get to that right after this quick break. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd appreciate it if you could share it on social media or make a donation to help me keep it going. You can support me on Patreon at lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon or via PayPal at paypal.me slash nosrc. I also have a book out now. It's called The Secret History of Mac Gaming. And it's a deep dive into the highs and lows and surprising influence of Mac game development during the 1980s and 90s, which was written and edited with a general audience in mind. So if you know nothing about Mac gaming, don't worry, this book is for you. You can find out more and click through to read a few excerpts on the likes of Ars Technica and Gamma Sutra at the website secrethistoryofmacgaming.com. Now let's get back to the show. Remarkably, given Bomberman's decade-plus-long reign as the king of console multiplayer gaming, it wasn't actually until 1990, with the release of the fourth and fifth games in the series, that you could blow up your friends in the mazes. So a quick aside for those keeping count, I did skip one largely forgotten entry, the first-person perspective MSX title, 3D Bomberman, which was a, a neat historical curiosity, but really not much more. The multiplayer mode that defined Bomberman's public persona, series director Shigeki Fujiwara once noted in an interview, did not arrive smoothly. He had pushed for a battle mode to be included in the Game Boy and PC Engine releases, but others within the company said it wouldn't be worthwhile. It's not interesting to play against others, they insisted. But Fujiwara persisted, and he was soon proven right. Late in development, the Hudson Soft staff became hooked on multiplayer Bomberman. It got so rowdy, they had to impose bans on our play sessions. Fujiwara recalled in that same interview. With up to five players per battle, this 1990 Bomberman could get seriously chaotic. But that was a good thing. It was a huge hit with both players and the press, and it made a big impression in Europe, where it got DOS, Amiga, and Atari ST conversions in 1992 under the name Dynablaster. Besides the highly regarded multiplayer battle mode, it had an expanded single-player mode with themed worlds, boss battles, and a more involved story about two Bomberman's... Bomberman? Squaring it off, good versus evil style, to determine the fate of their creator's only daughter, which the evil black Bomberman had kidnapped and imprisoned in a mechanical castle. Yeah, I, I said a more involved story, not a good one. But perhaps the best thing about the game for people of a certain vintage was watching a young Robbie Williams systematically annihilate his Take That bandmates on the Amiga version during an episode of British TV show Games Master. So now we've just got Robbie, Mark and Jason left. Right, oh no, it's going to be congested Oh no, no, they got a red can. Mark is gone. Now it's a stalking game. Robbie and Jason. It's a stalking game now. It's all about thinking and trapping your opponent. This is getting very tense here. The crowd's going, oh, he's stuck in there. Oh, 
Jess is dead and Robbie is the winner! <laughs>So here, finally, nearly 80 years after the concept was born, Bomberman came together into the game that people went mad over. And boy, did Hudson Soft try to capitalize on its popularity. Bomberman very quickly found its way into the arcades, and once again onto Nintendo's console and handheld platforms, and then twice again on the PC Engine where they briefly experimented with the idea of annualized releases, sports game style. There was also a Super Nintendo version called Super Bomberman in 93, which did little that was new, but introduced the series to an even wider audience. And a special 10-player custom version for HDTVs that was only playable during the 1993 run of a yearly event called the Hudson Soft Super Caravan. Just in the first half of the 1990s, Bomberman appeared in, get this, 16 separate titles that between the lot of them were released across 14 different platforms. And you thought three Assassin's Creeds in 18 months was a lot. And it didn't really slow down at all after that. I'll give you a few of the highlights of the late 90s and early 2000s. In 1996, Saturn Bomberman became the first home console version to allow 10-player battles, on the proviso that you had two multi-tap adapters, 10 controllers, and enough space to squeeze 10 people around your TV. In 97, Bomberman 64 took its cue from Mario 64 by shifting into polygonal 3D and open environments. Well, in 1998, PlayStation debut entry Bomberman World went back to the traditional format, but rendered it in an isometric viewpoint. And after that, the experiments got kind of wild. There was a strategy game, a 3D platformer, a Zelda-style RPG, and, of course, as was customary for all late 90s video game mascots, not one, but two kart racing games. The 2000s wouldn't be any kinder to fans of the Cold Bomberman experience. There were yet more spin-off games and only a few attempts to do anything close to the maze-based carnage of 1990s battle mode. So these specifically were the Xbox 360 game Bomberman Live and PlayStation 3 entry Bomberman Ultra, which both found fine success by going back to basics. And on iOS... You could witness extreme havoc in 100-person Battle Bomberman in 2012. And then Bomberman just kind of faded from view, left to dwell on his past accomplishments while the rest of the gaming world passed him by. Shoji Mizuno, by the way, the artist and character designer I mentioned at the start, had made his way into the development team in 1993 with Mega Bomberman and had redesigned the character art in 94 with Super Bomberman 2. You might have to look closely to notice the difference, depending on which of the previous games you compare it to. But he altered the proportions of Bomberman to be less human-like and made some other tweaks to the character styling. And he also gave Bomberman eyebrows, because you never know when they might come in handy. And nowadays, Bomberman's future is less certain. Multiplayer console gaming has moved on. The focus today is on games like FIFA, Call of Duty, Rocket League, Fortnite, Overwatch. 
Games that are rooted in sports or in first-person shooting. These are games that tend to be dark and complex, difficult to learn and harder still to master. There's less room in the world for Bomberman's light-hearted, colourful, simplistic carnage. Though an old-school series reboot called Super Bomberman R has at least found a modest audience since its release on the Nintendo Switch last year. It's sold at least half a million copies, probably a lot more by now, and has an audience that could possibly grow considering that it's just recently, in June, made its way over to PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. If Bomberman can manage to gain traction again, there's still no guarantee that it'll stick around and enter a second golden era. Hudson Soft doesn't exist anymore. It folded into the struggling entertainment giant Konami in 2012. Konami has since reduced its video game publishing endeavours, and there's been increasing speculation over the past few years that they might pull out of the game's business entirely. So who knows what the little robot with dreams of becoming human might do. Maybe he'll rise to the fore again, outmaneuvering his rivals with their fancier graphics and their bigger guns and their blood and their guts. And he'll take the esports world by storm. Or maybe this Super Bomberman R game will prove to be one last hurrah, allowing him to fittingly go out in a blaze of glory. Or perhaps he'll fade away again, unable to shake off the ghosts of balloon-shaped monsters of old destined to repeat history and become irrelevant in a sea of mini-games. The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, scored and produced entirely by me with additional audio this week plucked from an old episode of Games Master. If you'd like to find out more about the Bomberman franchise, I'll have some links to my sources for this episode in the show notes at lifeandtimes.games. To support the show, you can rave about it on forums and social media, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform that allows reviews, and make a donation to help me recover running costs, which includes equipment upgrades like the new microphone I'm using right now, and to devote more of my time to the show. I accept one-time or monthly donations via paypal.me slash mossrc, or monthly donations on Patreon at lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. If you pledge on Patreon, you can also get access to some bonus material, like clips from my old interviews, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, and occasionally some other things too. I also have reward levels that allow you to influence the future direction of the show, or even to pick a topic for a future episode. And you can get your name in the credits, like three of my current backers, namely Wade Trigaskis, Simon Moss, and Vivek Mohan. Thanks guys for sticking with me through the ups and downs of this year. I know production has been far from consistent. So I will be back sometime in August after a, after a short holiday. 
And then I hope to get the season finale out the door no later than mid-September. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. See ya. Now, Robbie, I tip you to win. You know the prize you're getting. What, what does it mean to you to win the Games Master Golden Joystick? I just, I can't sum it up in words. <laughs> I, I'm getting so emotional now. There's so many people that I want to thank, but now, most of all, I want to thank my parents. Oh. This is for you. <laughs> okay.